On this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast, how communicating with instructors might be key to student success. When the idea of trying to ask for help becomes a half hour or 45 minute burden, um, that's just a huge obstacle to being able to ask for help. And if you can't ask for help, you can't receive help. And why the National Student Clearinghouse is exploring blockchain. We can bring all this data into one place. It's sort of like, so what, now what? I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast, connecting you with the conversations in higher ed IT and online learning, guiding decisions at top institutions. Can the cybersecurity workforce wait for learners to earn an advanced degree? Speakers at the Hack the Capital event in Washington last week discussed how four-year and graduate degrees shouldn't be the only path for training students interested in cybersecurity. Workers with backgrounds relevant to cyber, like veterans or law enforcement, might not have the time to pursue a multi-year program, especially as technologies and threats grow more advanced. Virtual reality company Victory XR is working with higher ed institutions to create meta-universities where their students can learn in virtual reality. Students can immerse themselves in concepts through VR, like visualizing molecules in, in, in organic chemistry, but also use the technology to interact with other students and teachers in a virtual space. VR has gone so well for one professor at Atlanta's Morehouse College that she thinks every incoming freshman should have a VR headset. The University of Arkansas hired its first system-wide chief information security officer. The system is working on unifying digital platforms across 22 campuses, including a move to Workday that's already in progress. The new system-wide CISO is tasked with overseeing security operations across these common platforms and identifying system-wide threats. Find all these stories and more on edscoop.com. Lumen Learning is exploring how to shape courseware to boost student success by asking students what they need directly. A common theme coming out of the company's testing centers, where they're testing introductory statistics courses, is that students need more personalized experiences and better communication with their instructors. Chief Academic Officer David Wiley shares what students have been saying thus far. Both Lumen and the Gates Foundation are really committed to this idea of eliminating race and income as predictors of student success. And so it's great to have a partner who's so well aligned with the work that we're trying to do. Um, Our approach to that uh, really has a couple of high-level Um, thrusts. And those include um, really having a deep focus on the student, what those students uh, need and want, what they are comfortable with, what they're uncomfortable with, really understanding kind of what the obstacles are to success for them and then trying to kind of systematically eliminate those obstacles. Uh, Trying to really strengthen the relationship between faculty and students, that's a a big area of emphasis for us as well. Uh, I think something that's happening increasingly in the market is that there's an emphasis on trying to automate a lot of interactions that students have with systems. Um, And we're trying to use technology kind of in the other direction to catalyze deeper relationships between faculty and students as opposed to having faculty interacting less with students. Um, And so really trying to establish those relationships of care and encouragement um, where, where faculty are able to support and encourage students along Trying to make it easier for students to engage in help-seeking behavior, I'd say, is another big pillar of the work that we're doing. Um, If in that moment when you need help, if you feel like there 
are kind of structural obstacles to help or social obstacles to you of being able to go find help, um, that's a problem because you're already in a place where you need help. We don't need additional obstacles to being able to seek help. So if you feel self-conscious about raising your hand um, because you don't want everyone to think that you don't understand and feel singled out in that way, or if your professor has set a really high bar about, um, you know, if you send me an email, that's a professional communication. And I expect it to have a professional tone and be professionally written. And um, if you're spending 30 minutes trying to craft the email in which you're asking your faculty member for help, then you know, that's a problem as well. But you can see that all these things really are, uh, these first couple of pillars I've mentioned are all focused around students and their relationship with teachers, how they interact with them, how they get help from them, how they get encouragement and support from them. Um, there's another set of kind of pillars underlying the work that have to do with just helping both faculty and students be more aware of and be more successful in implementing evidence-based practices. So there are things that teachers can do that will be more successful in helping students, you know, achieve mastery on the things that they're learning. There are things they can do that will be less successful. And um, most faculty don't have any training in that regard. You know, they have a PhD in their discipline and they may have attended a workshop a time or two, but they really don't have a lot of training in what specific teaching practices they can engage in that will maximize the likelihood of student learning. Mm -hmm. and students at the same time, they may have had a study skills class somewhere along the lines uh, or somewhere along the way, but they likely you know, also don't have a deep grounding in what are the most uh, you know, well-researched, high-impact study techniques that they could be engaging in. So one of the things we're focused on doing in this work is really integrating professional development for faculty and metacognitive supports for students into the courseware so that even if you're not necessarily aware of the name of a particular evidence-based practice or you've never read any of the research articles that underlie that, um, that just through the course of using the courseware, uh, you'll be kind of encouraged and nudged and helped uh, to implement these things that are going to result in better student learning by creating a default path through the courseware that just makes it easier to do things that are more effective than doing things that might be less effective. Absolutely. Can you um, talk a little bit about just personalizing learning here and uh, Luminous working with uh, user testing centers for that student user testing centers. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the priorities that have come out of conversations around this um, and, and some of the things that are, you know, at the top of the list when it comes to building something where it is responsive to students and, and students' needs. Yeah, so the user testing centers have been absolutely amazing. We're only about a semester into them and uh, they've just been a revelation. So the way the user testing centers are set up is that uh, on two campuses currently, there are two schools where we, we have these user testing centers established and we're looking to add two more. Um, but at, at these schools, we have interns that we've hired and we've trained to run user testing sessions. And so the user testing isn't done by our staff, it's not done by college staff, it's done by students. And the students then recruit other students um, to come and participate in those testing sessions. And so the students who are running the testing sessions are paid as interns, uh, and the students who are participating in the testing sessions are paid uh, in order to participate. And we feel like it's really important to pay folks to participate in those experiences because 
um, the, the students that we're the most interested in trying to reach out to and help likely don't have just a lot of free time to hang around campus and volunteer for you know, optional activities, but making it something where they can be paid for their time really makes it possible for more people to participate in that. And one of the things that we've learned that I think has been really interesting is that the student participants in the user testing are much more open to being really honest and forthright with a tester when the tester is another student as opposed to if it's a faculty member or someone from staff or someone from a company outside. And so that level of just kind of honesty and candor um, has been fabulous. Uh, you know, when you ask about what are some of the things that we've been learning um, that we didn't really even anticipate coming out of those sessions. So one of those I mentioned a moment ago, uh, help seeking behavior and how difficult it can be for students to get help sometimes. Um, I had never heard before a case of a student who felt like they really they needed to spend 30 to 45 minutes crafting an email to send to their faculty member asking for help because the faculty member had drilled into them that communication with me is a professional communication and you know I expect a certain you know don't send me kind of texting sort of language in your email but use complete sentences and punctuation and um, you know when the idea of trying to ask for help becomes a half hour or 45 minute burden, um, that's just a huge obstacle to being able to ask for help. And if you can't ask for help, you can't receive help. So you know, ideas and suggestions that arose from those conversations were uh, include things like providing email templates to students that are kind of pre-written, that are already pretty professional, that allow them um, you know, to kind of fill in the blanks about the things that they need so that they can get those communications off to faculty uh, in a much kind of uh, lower stress and a, a lot faster way. Um, creating, we're in the process now of designing some features in this new courseware to make it easier for students to ask for help in ways that are anonymous so that they don't have to feel like they're singling themselves out as someone who doesn't know or who doesn't understand um, because a lot of students uh, struggle with that. Just all the complexity around being able to ask for help and kind of the, the social stigma around asking for help and then really creative solutions around ways we might be able to make that easier, more friction-free, faster, less kind of socially penalizing. Um, I don't think we were expecting that at all out of these conversations with students, but uh, they, those conversations went there very quickly. And in addition to great insights, they had great ideas for how to overcome them. From the instructor side, in conversations that you've had with instructors about this or, or people who might be using this or working with students directly, um, do you feel that they were aware of this being as much of a problem as, as the test centers kind of indicated? No, I don't think so. I think most faculty feel like if students are confused, I'm here, they can ask me for help and I'll answer their questions. And the number of, of social barriers to why they might not want to raise a hand or they might not want to come to office hours or why it's difficult to write an email. Um, I think as we share this research out more broadly, I think a lot of faculty are going to be pr pretty surprised by it. Yeah, that's it, it's just something I've never thought about before is is promoting that two way communication because that's that's kind of the way it's traditionally gone right is is you continue on through the course and if you need help you really actively have to reach out one more comment on that point um you know one of the features that uh, we're building into the courseware is something that allows 
faculty to do either individual student or kind of student, groups of student communication based on data that are flowing through the system. So if I can see there's a group of students that are all struggling with a single topic, I can proactively reach out to them basically by clicking one button and getting a templated message for me, the faculty member, you know, that says, hey, I can see you're, you're all struggling with this. Here's some additional resources that you might, you know, find useful, or if you don't like to come to office hours at this time, I can be available. But making it really easy for that communication to flow both directions, not just from students asking for help, but for faculty to be able to proactively monitor and reach out to students to say, hey, I can see that you know, you're having trouble with this topic and I'd love to help you with that. That kind of encouraging, supportive communication from a faculty member that says, I'm paying attention mm -hmm. to you and to whether you're succeeding or not and I care about you and I want to help, um, that is really well received by students. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that we noticed um, earlier on is that a lot of the communication that comes from faculty to students is critical in one way or another. It's a message that says, hey, I didn't see you in class, or hey, I see you're struggling with this topic. And so something that we've done is also built in more um, kind of congratulations and encouragement kind of com communication. So as opposed to just popping up on a faculty's dashboard when I'm struggling with the topic, if I take a quiz and I just hit it out of the park, it ought to be very easy for the faculty member to just send me a note that says, that was awesome, you're doing great work, you know, keep it up. Um, and as we've had that feature out in the field and seen student response to that, it's really incredible. It's a one sentence or a two sentence message that comes from a faculty member. But in many cases, it sounds like it's the first time a student has ever had an individual outreach from a faculty member that was positive. And that can be really life-changing for students too, to get some encouragement from their faculty. Absolutely. Um, are there any other features that you wanted to highlight right now that, that kind of came out of the testing centers um, that kind of set this courseware apart? Especially, I, I think this is intro to statistics, is that right? Intro to statistics, yeah. Yeah, could you um, talk a little bit about that and, and some of the ways that the student feedback is really shaped this project? Yeah, uh, another example of that would be, again, putting this the relationship between the teacher and the student really in the center of the design. Students telling us that they really don't know anything about their faculty. They feel like their faculty don't know anything about them. They don't know their names. They, it's really transactional. It doesn't feel like a relationship. So you know, one of the things that we're building into the courseware is essentially an icebreaker kind of activity for students to be able to say, this is me. I know the, the campus system says this is my name, but this is actually the name I prefer to be called by. And here's a recording of how I pronounce it so that you can pronounce it correctly when you talk to me. Having their preferred name show up throughout the courseware and all the dashboards and anywhere that the faculty member might run into it. And giving the faculty member that same opportunity to say, here's a picture of me, you know, here's my name, here's a little bit about me so you can get to know me some. And trying to plant the seeds of those relationships right from the very first day of class. Here's who I am, here's what I'm interested in, Here, here's how you say my name, things like that. Um, some things that maybe are a little different in terms of not being centered around the faculty and student relationship would be, you know, we've taken a really deep dive into what the prerequisite understanding is that's necessary for each of the topics in intro to statistics. And making that available in a co-requisite kind of way, so that at the beginning of each module, I have the opportunity to take 
a very quick test, which doesn't count for any points, so it's completely low stakes, just to see if I have the prerequisites that I need to be successful in the next topic that I'm about to study. And in a pretty fine-grained way, if it turns out that there are some things I need to know that I don't know yet, I can kind of jump right in to remediate on those and get some practice so that I can be ready to go ahead and succeed when I get into the module. So providing that just-in-time kind of co-requisite support um, that is data-driven is another thing that sort of sets that apart. Um, another thing we've been trying very hard to do, and this is turning out to be very interesting. Well, I don't have a ton to say about it yet, except that it's been really interesting, is sharing with students uh, and talking to them about a statistics class is full of examples, right? Data sets about this, data sets about that. I remember when I took statistics, for some reason we kept coming back to a data set about the average height and average weight of men and women. And like, I can't imagine a topic I could care about less than what's the average height of a, a male, right? So being able to lay out data sets in front of students, examples in front of them and say, is this even remotely interesting or engaging? And have them say, no, it is not. In fact, it's terrible. Um, and then you know, get feedback from them about what kinds of things would they like to see that can kind of serve as a mirror so that as they're looking into the course materials, they're seeing themselves there. They're seeing their interests reflected back at them. They're seeing their life experience reflected back at them. Um, you know, when the materials that you're studying actually are interesting and engaging, you are gonna, you're gonna come to them with a different level of commitment and energy and effort, as opposed to something that's just so dry and boring, you can barely bring yourself to read it. So this real emphasis on uh, you know, having students involved in the selection of examples and the selection of data sets. And maybe overall, the, the kind of high level principle here is that historically, educational materials have always been designed for students by people who are experts in the discipline. And really, I think the, the primary differentiator of this work, if you were to try to say it all in one sentence, is that we really are designing these materials with students as opposed to for students. So they're involved right from the very beginning. They're giving feedback all along the way, both about the content, about the features of the platform. For example, how do I ask for help and what does that look like? Um, having them deeply involved throughout the process from the very beginning uh, is really just making a huge difference in, in a bunch of ways. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I can only imagine that it, it's probably pretty fun for the students too, to be able to, to, be able to give that feedback. Uh, going ahead into the next semester, um, I'm not sure if you are, are running this over the summer or not, but what are some of the um, priorities or, or some of the things that the Lumen team is looking forward to in entering kind of the next um, part of this testing? Well, I think the thing we're looking forward to the most is that the user testing centers are amazing and they're great, but the real proof in the pudding is when you're in a classroom and there are students who are using the material or an online class and they're using the material. Um, our philosophy of course material design is that course materials are all hypotheses. You go out and you read the research that's relevant. You pull together these principles. You pull together things that other people have shown have worked in other circumstances and you try to arrange them in a way that's really going to successfully facilitate student learning. That hypothesis you have about which principles to call on and how to combine them, how to scope and sequence them, uh, you're not going to get that right the first time. 
Uh, and so having some humility about that and understanding that here's our hypothesis, we're going to go test it and collect a bunch of data. The data are going to show us that we were right here, we were wrong in these ways, and then being able to, based on those data, very rapidly kind of make improvements to the courseware and put it back out in the field again through multiple years worth of cycles of continuous improvement, um, I think is the thing that we're most excited about. Because you can read the research and the research will say, well, this will work, this doesn't work, but that worked or didn't work for those students in those place, you know, in that place studying that topic. And bringing it all together, is all, it's always uncertain. You're always making your best guess based on what the research says. So being able to really do this testing and participate in these cycles of data-driven improvement uh, and make the course better semester after semester after semester, I think is the thing that we're the most excited about. That was Lumen Learning's David Wiley. You can read more about how universities are adjusting to student needs through new tech features on adscoop.com. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The National Student Clearinghouse is making a foray into blockchain technology, developing its own comprehensive learner record and partnering with tech companies like Identify on matching students with jobs using verifiable skills and learning experience data. The Clearinghouse's Data Connectivity Manager, Tara Conrad, explains why it made sense for the organization to work on CLR and why the new records are more for students than admissions offices. For those of you who don't know, Clearinghouse um, supports uh, right around 3,600 colleges and universities. And um, primarily, uh, we focus on enrollment data and supporting financial aid services and degree data. We have a service called Degree Verification, um, where when students are going through, a lot of times it's employment processes or something like that, um, you know, Clearinghouse is very much part of the verification service. So if you apply for a job and they want to verify the degree that you say you have, that sort of pings the Clearinghouse instead of 36 individual uh, institutions. So we provide that sort of product and service on behalf of our um, colleges and universities. So as the technology shifts and we start to look more at, um, you know, blockchain records um, for academics and, and pieces like that. Clearinghouse was in a really interesting position to say, well, let's kind of innovate around that. So um, it started a couple of years ago um, with the American Workforce uh, Policy Advisory Board, um, had a pilot that they ran um, and we partnered with WGU and IBM IQ4 um, to kind of build that out and start to see what it looked like. And from there, um, we've been involved in several bleeding edge sort of initiatives, um, all surrounding either blockchain or, um, you know, sort of giving students or empowering learners, I guess is a better way to say it, in um, utilizing their records um, and really sort of saying, okay, if Clearinghouse is going to have all of these records in, in one place for you, um, what, what does that look like? And can we use that data to explore career pathways? Um, you know, can we look at what self-sovereign records may look like in the future? Um, could we get into skills gap analysis? 
um, and, and really aggregating, you know, learner records into one spot. So that's sort of how it started. Um, it was kind of this natural progression. And, and since then, you know, we're, we're still ideating and, and um, you know, trying to kind of move the needle on, on a lot of these pilot programs. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about MyHub, what it is, and some of what you've found out thus far in addressing some of these needs? MyHub is a is a digital record locker or wallet um, where all of the students' um, data that's been submitted on their behalf to the clearinghouse, so enrollment data and degree data, um, automatically populates into um, the platform, and from there, we my hub offers a variety of traditional academic services as well. So um, you can seamlessly order transcripts from my hub. You can get enrollment certificates from my hub. Um, so there's a lot of services within my hub, the my hub space, which aren't blockchain and sort of bleeding hedge technology. Um, and then we also offer the ability to bring in. Um, learner and employment data. So you can um, port in badging information. Uh, we currently have integrations with Badger and Credly, uh, and we're working on bringing in more of those. Um, and we can port in other data sources too. So, um, you know, think about comprehensive learner records or co-curricular data, um, and we can kind of bring all of that into my hub um, from the schools or other organizations in for the learner to have in, in one split in one spot. No, absolutely. And in getting this set up, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges or some of the technology related pieces that have gone into setting up my hub and some of the features that you found most helpful um, when when putting this all together? So um so clearing clearinghouse um, is very focused on keeping data safe and secure, right? So we're, we're there for the schools. So, um, you know, traditionally like data that comes into clearinghouse doesn't really leave the clearinghouse. So as we've been looking at blockchain solutions and what that, what that looks like, right? So if, if data is on the chain, how, how do we solution for a system where data is still safe and secure at the clearinghouse, um, but then you're providing a, a blockchain solution. So the way that we've been getting creative with those pieces has been really interesting and challenging. And, and we've got great people on our team that um, have come up with some just amazingly creative solutions for that. Yeah, can you dig a little bit more into that maybe? Um, what's, a, what's a good example? Um, I think it would be like the the data that actually sits on the chain versus you know the credential being at clearinghouse um, or uh, having systems in place where when credentials are accessed um, there's still a verification back to the clearinghouse. Um, so uh, you know so solutions like that, which are you know we kind of have different setups based on how the data uh, is being used. Can you? speak a little bit to what you've been hearing from colleges and universities about adopting these systems and some of their concerns maybe. I know that this is pretty early along 
um, in, in its adoption. So what are some of the things that you're hearing from institutions? Um, it's really it's really mixed. Um, and I think that the important message here is that my hub has value, whether you know you're a very traditional organization with small tech resources, um, or if you're you know cutting edge and ready to hop in with you know blockchain and self-sovereign records and skills gap analysis. So my, my hub is really sort of solution to meet the schools where they are. So um, as you know, if they're if they're ready for blockchain, if they're ready for skills, um, you know, we're happy to work with them and and can kind of meet those needs. Or if they really are, you know, if they're if they're a traditional organization with limited tech resources, um, my hub is pulling a lot of data that we already have at Clearinghouse. So, um, you know, if it, you know, there's no need for the platform to fully function. Um, with any additional data pulls or, or extractions into the clearinghouse. Gotcha. Can you explain a little bit more, uh, just some of the insights that you've you've gotten through the, the beginning of this program, just kind of um, because what are some of the things that are next on the to-do list with this initiative? What are some of the things that have risen to the top um, where the National Student Clearinghouse is now saying, oh, this is a priority for, for this platform? So our next release will be a skills gap analysis engine. Um, and that, you know, that'll be available uh, for learners in schools uh, that really want to look at that from um, an education perspective on their campuses. Um, I think we're very focused on being um, a single location for schools and learners to put data or document repository. Um, the solution was platformed from the beginning to support the lifelong learner. So students can access MyHub once they've left your organization. Um, you know, if your the username and password at your college expired. Um, so as you know, the student sort of migrates through um, undergrad to grad school into you know continuing ed and professional development, um, we've really positioned um, the platform, and I think we see really focusing on building out the platform into supporting that and being an aggregation point for not only the school, but the learner as well. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to bridge some of these data sources? And I saw that the Clearinghouse is working with um, Identify on, uh, on a partnership with, with Smart Resumes. Can you talk a little bit about why these kind of partnerships and why kind of creating these different bridges is, is so important? Well, I think if we can bring all this data into one place, it's sort of like, so what, now what? Right, so, and, and you know, Clearinghouse is a nonprofit. We have fairly limited resources and we need to be incredibly particular about how we utilize those resources so as we you know find partners that have innovative solutions that you know are solving problems um or you know seem like they're you know adding value to the platform um you know we are we are very interested in 
supporting that and, and you know, looking to sort of say, um, you know, this is this provides a really creative use case for that learner's data. Um, and in the case of Smart Resume, um, what was really enticing to us was the merging of verified credentials with, you know, sort of you building out and creating your own resume and still being able to represent, um, you know, your content in your accomplishments in your own words. Um, so we thought it was a really cool mix of, you know, verified data and um, credential packages with, you know, the, the learner really representing themselves. There's a lot of discourse going on around CLRs, and some of it is is kind of digging into this isn't exactly how our system was built to work. It's a little bit of a heavy lift, that kind of thing. What's some of the um, aspects or something you think that people aren't taking into account when looking at CLRs that you think is important to know? So... I think if you look at the history of the CLR, it kind of gives a different perspective to that, right? So the CLR really started as a grassroots effort. It was learners saying the academic transcript isn't capturing what the, you know, the learning that I found meaningful on campus or the experiences or um, achievements that I had on, on campus. I, I, want, I want that represented somewhere. And that sort of trickled up through the Dean of Students office to the registrar's office. But that, that's really where it started from. It wasn't admissions offices saying, hey, I, I want to receive a CLR. And it wasn't the registrar's offices saying, we want to package a CLR. It really was the student saying, I, I want this captured and val you know, verified somewhere. Um, so so as as part of that um you know it makes sense that education software really wouldn't be set up to pull that out and and when you look at the clr there's sort of two schools of thought there right so there's the the one school of thought is saying well your comprehensive learner record you would have one at each school and it's like an enhanced transcript right so here's your academic transcript with all of these extra pieces, whether they're co-curricular or service learning or, you know, whatever you want to call it, and you would have one at each school. And then there's another approach to that, which is where the student has one really comprehensive record of their learning and achievements. And that's the approach that Clearinghouse has taken. But where that, where that really sits is the learner and employment record. Right. So if, if you think about a comprehensive learner record and, you know, if that is sort of going in the direction of you'd have one per education institution, Clearinghouse is sort of saying, well, we're bringing all of that into one area for the student to package in support of, you know, employment opportunities or, or something like that. So, um, you know, the there's multiple approaches to it and it's so new um, that it, it's hard, you know, where, where Clearinghouse is sort of taking the approaches, we have so many pieces of it already. Um, you know, we're really making it easy for the schools to start compiling this information at Clearinghouse and we can pull it out of our system and format it into a CLR um, or whatever that looks like. So. 
you know, there's lots of different approaches. It, it just depends on the direction that the school wants to go in. Um, and then, like I said, we're, we're here to support the schools in that endeavor. Yeah, it's it's great to hear a little bit about that background and how that fits into the development. Could you talk a little bit about how this technology fits into the landscape for transfer students and, and students who are looking to um, transfer right about now? I saw that the Clearinghouse came out uh, with a report discussing kind of the sharp drop in transfer students. Can you speak a little bit to how this feeds in? So from my, from my experience and the conversations that I've had, we really, you know, if, if you're talking about a comprehensive learner record or something like that, we have not found that admissions offices are interested in, in receiving and processing anything really in addition to the academic transcript. It's one of the first questions we ask, right? Where I do think this becomes interesting for transfer is if learners are taking their data and they're saying, I have all of this stuff, right? What, what can I do with it? Are there pieces of the picture that I'm missing? Um, I think where we can start to provide interesting insights is based on the accomplishments that you have, you know, if you brush up on, you know, this, this corner over here, um, you know, if you take this one extra class or if you get this one extra certification, you'd be able to sort of shift into this career set or it would begin to kind of set you on a different trajectory. That's it, in my opinion, in the conversations that I personally have had, that's where I would say this is going to start to have an impact. So it's more about the students guiding their own path rather than saying this is just a substitute for the transcript. I don't foresee the transcript really going away. Mm -hmm. no, and I don't, I, that's, you know, that's conversations that I've had, um, you know, the, the, that act the, the, the pathway for the academic transcript is very well worn, right? And and like I said, we've had lots of conversations with admissions offices, and um, you know, even before I came to Clearinghouse, um, I hail from the student system, and you know, we used to have conversations. And there's just not, you know, the admissions offices, you know, in general, from what we've heard, feel they kind of are getting what they need. That that's it's not there's not necessarily a, a a problem to be solved there. Again, that was Tara Conrad, Data Connectivity Manager and Learning Mobility and Experience at the National Student Clearinghouse. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com as well as anywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Bamforth.